You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. No is a very, very important word. Using it selectively is essential, and obviously we all know, we've all been in situations where no was powerful and essential. But no does little to advance innovation. It does little to say, I can do this, to be a change maker and impact maker. In fact, no basically almost always gets you nowhere. That piece of advice was from Suzanne Fry, a 2006 graduate of the MIT Sloan Fellows MBA program, who spoke at the MIT Women's Unconference. The conference took place on MIT's campus in March, bringing together hundreds of women in the MIT community. 350 alumni and students registered for the event from 29 states, six countries, and 31 courses, spanning seven decades. At the event, attendees made meaningful connections, shared stories, and heard inspirational talks from fellow alumni, like Suzanne. During this podcast, you'll hear three lightning talks given by MIT alumni at the Women's Unconference, all with valuable nuggets of advice and thoughtful stories on topics like how to build a supercomputer out of a PlayStation 3 and how storage at Google is like Tetris. Up first, we return to Suzanne Fry. Let's hear how a project at Google taught her the power of saying yes. I'm here to talk about two simple words that we take for granted. In fact, they're two of the first words we learn to say. We first learn to say no, and there's evolutionary reasons for why we first learn to say no in our lives. And then we learn to say yes. No and yes. And about 22 years ago, I attended a career panel seeking advice from, from the elders. And unfortunately, I can't give credit to this individual, but I'm riffing off her today. She was asked, What made a difference in your career? And her answer was simple. She said, I simply said yes. I said yes when others said no. And that has resonated with me throughout my career. No is a very, very important word. Using it selectively is essential. And obviously, we all know, we've all been in situations where no was powerful and essential. But no does little to advance innovation. It does little to say, I can do this, to be a change maker and impact maker. In fact, no basically almost always gets you nowhere. So I'm going to talk about a situation. I'm going to to geek out a little bit, sort of riff off some further hardware themes here at Google and talk about a situation at Google where I said yes and everyone else was saying no. And talk a little bit about what that experience was like. Everybody familiar with the game Tetris? I might be dating myself a little bit, but okay. (laughs) Lots of different shapes, all made of four squares. L's, long, long lines, squares, it's Z's. Infrastructure at Google and doing it right is a lot like playing the game of Tetris. Take two of our products, Google Search and YouTube. From an infrastructure perspective, these are dramatically different products. Search is very CPU intensive. It's always out there crawling the index, needs to be fresh, autocomplete when you type, CPU intensive, obviously some network involved. YouTube, 
on the other hand, is very storage intensive and very network bandwidth intensive. And certainly there's CPU involved with it, but not nearly to the degree of search. Now, what does this mean? This means that actually in our infrastructure at any given time, we're getting very, very sort of heterogeneous infrastructure needs. And they all drop into that infrastructure in a wide variety of ways. And if you don't play Tetris right, you end up with a lot of stranded resource. So search has got like something like 40,000 queries per second going on right now. YouTube has 400 hours every single minute uploaded. You take that, you take that times all of our other products and you get, again, a very, very diverse footprint. And it's, at the base of that footprint is this big bottleneck called power. And we actually have to plan power years and years and years in advance. We build our own servers, source all of our own network, and if we don't do that right and we don't plan in advance correctly, we end up, again, not being able to serve our very mission of the company. So what was my charter? My charter was to go away from the loudest and biggest wins in terms of who gets what infrastructure at Google. And it was a grand sort of operations research quantitative analytics problem to say, how do we go about giving software engineers the right tools to build the right software in the most optimal way? And how do we democratize infrastructure access such that other great ideas at Google can flourish? Now, I'll take an example like Google Play. When I started this project, Google Play was just this fledgling product. It's now one of our largest. Google Cloud was just emerging. Again, very fledgling, but they were competing against Search and YouTube and others to try to get infrastructure and to plan their future and to build a low-cost, highly effective infrastructure. What was behind all of this was a grand power dynamic. You know, there were two great giants, three great giants at the time at Google, YouTube, Search, and Ads. They all believed they had a right to this infrastructure. And by my coming in and saying, actually, we want to democratize this, make it fair for everybody, and actually give you tools, and do you have to plan in advance so that you can play Tetris in the best way for you, but we can all play Tetris together well, well, let me just say that there were some very, very interesting dynamics that I had to tackle. It was a different way of thinking. And I was running and saying yes, and for three years I was like, we can do this. But the tenacity involved with actually continuing to do that day in and day out when you had some very powerful people saying, I think this is a bad idea, wow. I, I definitely, um, I grew some strength during that time. And um, <laughs> I'm proud to say today, right, that we are able to now launch new products and do so effectively, largely because we've given software engineers, each and every IC at the company, the tools and powers to say, build the thing you need to build and build it efficiently and so that we can all play well together. So I said yes. And that's one of the many, many, many examples. And I stuck with it. And I stuck with it for my team. And they're all doing really well today, and I'm really happy for them. But I want to say, don't be afraid to say yes. It's one of the most important words you will use in your career. And thank you all very much. Next up is Katherine Crawford, a mechanical engineer graduate from the class of 1991. Katherine describes her house as the nerdiest house on the planet. She works in AI and machine learning at IBM, and her husband is a roboticist. So they have robots all over their house hear her advice on being able to pivot when your industry changes. 
So I was part of the team that built the first petaflop computer in the world. I had to write most of the software. I had to do a lot of the design. It was an amazing experience. I got to meet senators. I got to be in the congressional record for these accomplishments. It was equivalent to the four minute mile being run. Um, people thought this was an amazing, amazing experiment. We did it. It was in the national news. I got to be on the TV. It was great. However, uh, someone in IBM, not me, decided this was not our business. So after having all these technical accomplishments, I was the coolest mom on the block at that point because we built a supercomputer out of PS3s. Um, so I had PS3s all in my basement. <laughs> Kids loved it. Um, but I loved it because it was just so much fun. It was the most collaborative experience I'd ever had in my life. We were working with national labs. We were working with IBM product development, IBM researchers. I just learned a lot about how to deal with people. It was amazing, but it got canceled. So I had to sit back and say, well, do I leave, right? Because that's always an option for you. If you really want to pursue your dreams and your company doesn't, get out. So I could leave or I could stay and say, maybe I want to try something different because at the time I still had younger kids and IBM Research, by the way, nice plug here, it's a great place for moms. So I said, I'll stay and I'll decide something else to do. So then, I said, well, what do I want to do? I have this expertise in kind of embedded systems and algorithms and things like that, and I found a project that was about building a high-speed networking card to do very, very fast analysis on security, on just using very, very low latency processing, all those kinds of things. That was phenomenal because the first time in my life I got introduced to this thing called the FPGA. So all you Course 6 people out there know what I'm talking about. And I learned to do hardware simulation, which was, for me, totally amazing cool. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, you're an algorithm person and you really were software. Why did you get involved in hardware? Because kind of think of it, I was actually taking a step down, right? I was now the low person on the totem pole. But I looked at it as a way to continue to develop skills, right? And I also wanted to just understand soup to nuts the way building a product works. So I went in. We had, once again, we had best paper awards for all of our hardware simulation, all these kinds of things. This was, we built a global team. We were working across, you know, Germany, China, all over. We won internal research awards, everything like that. The sad truth is, this chip never made it out of our fabs. So after years of working on this, best paper awards, all those things, it's killed. So again, you have to make the decision. If I really want to go work on network processing, high-speed things, low-power embedded systems, I can leave the company, or I can stay and find a way to do it, or move on to something else. I ended up applying for my own funding internally, and I got money to work on something called the low-power storage node. So I worked with a partner, Freescale, they're now NXT. So again, I had to learn how to reach outside, build my network, all those kinds of things. And we built a very, very high-speed user space network card for almost no cost on the IBM side. Again, we won the HPEC IEEE Best Paper Award. People were amazed at everything we did. I actually helped, through this project, build the research lab for IBM in Krakow, Poland. So I got a lot of travel to that part of the, the world. That was kind of fun. But I ran out of money. In 2015, I did a big corporate presentation about how we could make money there, and IBM killed the project. So around this time, you're saying, why the heck are you still on IBM? <laughs> You've done three projects that have 
won awards, you're in the congressional record, you know, you're now a distinguished engineer, which by the way, for the common language now is I'm an IC, so I kind of do my own thing, but why are you still there? And what I did was I took this as an opportunity to step back for a minute, look at my kids, look at where every, everything was going in my life, and look at also what was happening around us. And I said, you know, now's the time, because I'm an IC, and I did work hard technically to get to this point, where I think I'm gonna work on problems that really impact people. That I've decided that maybe my place is not to net just make money for IBM, because I guess IBM doesn't think that either. Um, <laughs> but I do have a lot of cool people to work with who are smarter than me, who energize me, things like that. So I'm going to work on problems for social good. So I, my background is all in algorithms. I did simulations of dynamical systems and Monte Carlo and all different kinds of things. And what I said was, I'm gonna go learn machine learning and I'm gonna go find problems for machine learning that other people who wanna make money off of machine learning like driverless cars and, and um, voice recognition and things like that, I'm gonna go apply that to problems that have to relate to social good. Just an example of that, one of the projects I work on now, actually I am blessed to continue to have deep relationships here at MIT, so I work with David Newman and Leah Sterling on problems around human activity recognition and urban safety. And what we're trying to do is say, how can we use Android phones to basically track human activity and understand if someone is under duress? So a problem that is near and dear to my heart, um, like I said, I do have a pensioner right now on an urban campus, is I want to know if I can use her phone and all of the accelerometer data under there to understand when she's impaired, for instance, going out to someone to a bar, and when she needs help and may not be able to make the right decisions. That's the, kind of the problem that, that I'm addressing right now. So, people always say, how would you summarize your career? And I'm like, oh God. Uh, well, it's been kind of back and forth and weaving and bobbing and all those things. Um, so first thing people say, have you found your landing spot? Where I am right now, I think I found my landing spot that I'm gonna work on social good problems. If I had to come up with my dream job, I kind of have it right now. So I'm writing software for societal impact, but I also spend quite a bit of time hacking around on robots and, and that's a lot of fun too. As a double major in engineering and computer science and management, Belle Pesci, class of 2010, thought her future would revolve around great technological advances. But it was something else that ended up giving her fame in her home country of Brazil. That's coming up after this short break. This podcast is produced in conjunction with the MIT Alumni Advisors Hub the one-stop shop for getting advice from MIT alumni about anything from what to do with your major to how to prepare for a job interview. The platform has almost 2,000 alumni registered, all willing to give their time to either students or their fellow alums to give advice on things they wish they knew as students or as they began their careers. Visit alumniadvisors.mit.edu and sign up for the Advisors Hub today to give or get advice. Before the break, I mentioned Belle Pesci, class of 2010, and her talk about something unexpected that made her famous in Brazil. Let's hear what happened. Since I was a little kid, like many of you, I was in love with technology, and I thought that my whole journey would be based in technology. 
I made it into MIT. I looked for internships like Google and Microsoft while I was in school. But I was also one of the crazy ones who, are trying, who was trying to break records and taking many lessons. So I was all over the place. Every semester I tried to take one more class. The last semester I took 13, lesson, 13 classes. <laughs> so you can imagine I was a crazy one, hundreds of units in the same one. Uh, but even though I was doing really, really well in technology, since I was all over the place, I got to experience other things as well. So in my course 15 lessons, I was doing some of these exercises that you had to write articles or write papers about your experiences. So my experiences at Microsoft, Google became papers here. And it was interesting because people really liked those papers. They were telling me that I was really good at that, that somehow they were reading those papers and they liked what I talked about. But for me, this was nothing. Like I had this idea that technology is right here. That's what matters. Writing communication, mad. that doesn't really matter. Like I'm the good one. I'm the technology person. And why am I bringing this story to you today? Because all of us have preconceptions on what is truly success. And I want to go through what truly happened to my journey after that. While in college, I loved MIT. And I found out that my main word in life was not even engineer, was entrepreneurship. Like, I didn't know what it, that was when I was a kid, but all my passion for building things and for creating things was, yes, engineer love, but also entrepreneurial love. Uh, I moved to Silicon Valley after I graduated. I was having these great experiences there. And I was always in love with doing experiments. 2011, the App Store came in, social media was growing, and like always, I was trying to do some experiments around that. One of the things I decided to do, and I thought this would be my way of trying new technology, not really to be a communicator, I decided to write an ebook, a free ebook on things I learned in Silicon Valley and how that potentially could be good to people in my country. I'm from Brazil. So I was living in Silicon Valley. I wrote that in Portuguese. Very neatly done. I did it with a lot of passion and a lot of love, 200 pages, all free, and I launched it in Brazil. For my surprise, even though I had done a good job, I thought maybe a couple hundred, a couple thousand people would read it. So this book goes viral, right? One million downloads, two million downloads, three million downloads, and I'm like, oh my god, like I'm a writer. <laughs> and, and like these crazy things that started to happen. I land in Brazil, everyone knows me, I can't walk on the streets. I'm like, I'm an engineer, like what's happening? So every single crazy thing that may happen to someone who becomes famous, Became. So I, I, I turned into one of the 100 most influential people of my country at age 24. And the crazy thing is, no one knew, not even that I went to MIT. You know, the things that I was most proud of, the, the things that I thought that defined me, suddenly weren't necessarily the things that were making me touch lives. And I was the biggest critic to my own work because I had prejudice against it. Come on, I'm a great coder. I've been coding since I'm 10 and a book. Is what's touching millions of lives. So I went a bit nuts. Uh, but then I realized that there is this one skill that I knew how to do. And this was present while I was here. And I call it reality translation. It's the ability to be able to get something you're part of. Because we're all part of bubbles, right? But if somehow you can get that experience that is so unique to you and share to other people in the sense that they can learn from that, even though they didn't pass through that, but make them act around it, that's a very valuable skill. So I got convinced that that was a very, very good skill. I moved back to my country five years ago, and I opened a school called Fazinova. And that was my second big surprise. I thought that my readers were 18 to 22-year-old kids, people that just like me, 
like they were a couple years younger than me and were looking for, for inspiration on me because I was much older than them, two years older. Uh, but for my surprise, it wasn't this. Most of my public were 35 to 50 year olds who are very successful, but they are humble enough to realize that the world is changing really fast and they don't want to fall behind. That's a super cool public, by the way. They're open-minded, they have great experiences, they're willing to learn from each other. And then I decided to go on an expedition to understand what are the things that most need reality translation. If we need to translate reality and that can help people understand challenges, what can we do? So over the past five years, through my work, I ended up going to over 50 countries. My clients go from small companies to large companies that realize that they're close to die, even though they used to be the biggest ones 50 years ago, to people who are high executives and suddenly now they want to become artists. So we have these amazing people that for 50 years were executives and now they want to be singers. Uh, and even governments. And through that, I became obsessed with trying to well-defined problems and trying to solve problems. And I realized that the one word that is key today, and we don't talk a lot about it, is empathy. So we talk a lot about leadership, a lot about innovation, a lot about collaboration. But if you look at the world through an empathetic point of view, if you observe the world from an empathetic point of view, you become a better innovator. If you talk to people, if you communicate, if you listen to other people through an empathetic lenses, you become better collaborators. And if you act and look at other people's actions through an empathetic lenses, you become a better leader. So we realize that empathy was the key to solving many things, but empathy is really hard. Empathy is really hard. So what can we do? And why did I decide to bring this to you today? All of us have our own preconceptions on what is success, on things that we believe people should be doing. And be it with your kids, or with your employees, or with your colleagues, you have expectations on people. The world is changing really fast. And some of the biggest challenges we have there, from big polarization on social media, to refugee crisis. If we don't take upon ourselves to one, try to translate our reality to other people in a way that can, they can understand a little better, and if we don't take upon ourselves to try to understand other people's reality without prejudice and, and without judging, without knowing, the world's gonna get even worse. Like, we're in a world right now, and social media is doing a lot to us, in which we're only fed things that retrofeed the things we already believe we're right about. And that's not easy. I realized that maybe the biggest key you can have in your hand is empathy. And it's not easy. So let's try to start with translating reality, which is a little easier than, than empathy. And I hope that that can be a good tool for you uh, to see the world with different eyes, understand how things are changing fast, and allow people to create their own journeys and their own successes, not necessarily being judged by your expectations. We hope you enjoyed the advice of these alumni, just three of the amazing speakers at the MIT Women's Unconference. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us your thoughts on this episode to at MIT underscore alumni. Thanks to Suzanne, Catherine, and Belle for sharing their words of wisdom. Don't forget to check out the MIT Alumni Advisors Hub at alumniadvisors.mit.edu. If you want to hear more surprising, insightful, and quirky stories from the MIT community, subscribe to the Slice of MIT podcast on iTunes. Let us know what you think. 
please rate the podcast and leave us a review. Also, check out our website at slice.mit.edu. Thanks for listening.